This week's episode is supported by the Food Revolution Summit. A deadly global pandemic makes one thing abundantly clear. Your health needs to be a priority, not just someday, but right now. Obesity, heart disease, Alzheimer's, type 2 diabetes, cancer, and other chronic illnesses are all fueled by diet and lifestyle choices, and they make infections much more dangerous too. This is why we are proud to partner with this incredible online event that is completely free and features 25 of the world's leading experts in plant-based health and medicine, including some of our favorites, Dr. Greger, Brenda Davis, Michael Clapper, and Will Bolshevitz. To get your free ticket to the biggest health event of the year, simply click the link in the show notes below. We basically careened down a path where we were looking for quick, simple fixes in the form of a pill or in the form of a procedure. And we built a healthcare system around this concept of gosh, it could be that easy. You could take a pill and it could fix your problem. Here we are, and let me be honest with you, Robbie, the 21st century doctor does not like the way that healthcare works. This is not the way that we want it. And we are the person in front of you who is executing healthcare in this way. And so we're the ones who end up taking the blame because the insurance industry is a faceless creature. Hi, plant friends, and welcome to another episode of the PBN podcast. Will Welshevitz, or Dr. B as he's affectionately known, is a graduate of Georgetown School of Medicine and a former chief medical resident at Northwestern Memorial Hospital and chief gastroenterology fellow at the University of North Carolina. When Will found the power of a plant-based diet, it has quite simply changed his life. He took this knowledge into his medical practice as a gastroenterologist. Will then started a crusade to convince his patients and followers that a plant-based diet full of fermented foods could radically change the gut microbiome. Along the way, he has witnessed some very positive transformations in people following his program, and he offers this advice following his own experience. He has himself lost over 45 pounds and claims to feel better than he has in years. Will has authored more than 20 articles in the top American gastroenterology journals, including the New York Times best-selling book, Fiber Fueled, the plant-based gut health program for losing weight, restoring your health and optimizing your microbiome. Throughout his career, Will has balanced his love of working alongside his patients with his interest in cutting-edge scientific breakthroughs that are changing the way we see the gut and how to treat symptoms. More recently, Will created the Plant-Fed Gut Online course for those seeking a complete knowledge of gut health. Will is an incredible man. I learned so much on this podcast and I know you will too. As always, please don't forget to comment, like and share. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It does help get the message out there. Let's get to the episode. Thanks so much for joining us on the PBN podcast, Dr. B. It's a pleasure to have you here. Robbie, it is a it is a true pleasure for me to be here on the PBN podcast. I am a huge fan of the work that you guys are doing. You're doing an incredible job. Not, I mean, this is you truly are a global brand, and it's um, it's great because you know together what we're trying to do is we're trying to change the way that people think. We're trying to open their minds and give them something to chew on, and they may see things differently. Hey everyone, I'm Dr. B, the Gut Health MD. I'm a gastroenterologist and I've brought my message to the internet because I want to hook you up with the best information, the ultimate in gut health from a source that you can trust. I spent 16 years doing medical training. I was on a grant from the NIH. I got a master's of clinical investigation. And this is honestly all so that I could bring you the ultimate in gut health. Before we get started and learn all about your amazing achievements today and all the things that you've been up to in recent times, let's go back in time and tell us how did you find out about the plant-based and vegan lifestyle? Where did that all begin for you? I think really where it began is it came from a place of almost desperation on my side. If, if I could paint a picture for you, 
picture a guy who is 30 years old, because that's what I was. I was 30 years old. I was doing incredibly well from a professional perspective. So I was in my medical training at the time, but I was the chief medical resident at one of the top residency programs in the United States, which, which is a high honor. All these things you, from the outside, you would look and you would say, this guy's got it going on. He's got good stuff happening for him. But on the inside, I was miserable. I had gained 50 pounds, 20 kilos compared to what I weighed when I was younger. Uh, I had high anxiety. I had high blood pressure. I had very low self-esteem. I mean, it didn't matter what I was accomplishing professionally. I didn't feel good about myself. I didn't look in the mirror and see the person that I wanted to be. And I was not confident. Something had to change. And I, I did what many people do. I tried to work my way out of it. I tried to exercise my way out of it. You know, the expectation or the thought from my perspective was that if you work hard enough, if you exercise enough, then you can eat whatever the heck you want and still accomplish your goals. And unfortunately, I learned a hard lesson, which is that that's just not true. Things changed for me when I met my wife. She was not my wife at the time. She was a first date. And we were at a restaurant. And this was a place that I, traditionally for me, I would order a ribeye steak or a pork chop or something like that. She ordered a whole bunch of sides. She didn't get anything off the main course menu. She ordered a whole bunch of sides and they were all vegetables. And I sat there and I was like, what is going on over there? I had never been around anyone in my entire life who was vegetarian or vegan. It's just not something that I had been exposed to. I grew up on the standard American diet. My, my diet was 5% plants and most of that was French fries. But what I saw was a person who by eating this way, she was satisfied she loved her meal. She was raving about the chef. And she didn't have to sit on the couch for an hour after the meal to make groaning noises and try to recover. And she had complete control over her health, over her body weight. She felt amazing. She looked amazing. And I saw that. And that by itself opened my mind. And I said, maybe there's something to this. Maybe there's something to diet. Maybe that actually makes a difference in terms of trying to accomplish these goals that I have for myself. So I didn't tell her because we were just starting to date and I didn't want to tell her that I, like, you know, if I, if I made it clear that I was doing this, then I was kind of being a little bit of a weirdo, but <laughs> I decided to abandon my typical way of eating. And instead of going home and getting fast food, I decided to go home and make a massive smoothie. I, I gulped down this smoothie and I felt so energized instantly the first time this happened. I felt so energized. I felt enriched. I felt like electricity running through my body. I ran to the gym and I smashed a workout. You know, and normally after dinner, I would have to lay on the couch and watch TV for like an hour or an hour and a half. And instead, I'm in the gym smashing a workout. That opened up my mind and set me on this journey where I started to change my diet. And it wasn't a radical change all in one day. It was little choices that started to add up and accumulate over time. But what I found was that as I started to make these changes, all of a sudden the weight is just melting off my body. The anxiety is lifting. My blood pressure normalizes. You can throw those medications in the trash. My confidence starts to surge. I get my self-esteem back. I feel the way that I'm supposed to feel, which is I'm like barely 30 years old and I start feeling young again. I stop feeling like I'm this old person who's falling apart. It, it, it changed my life. And she then became your wife. <laughs> she subsequently became my wife. And then at once, once, once the marriage certificate was signed, I told her the story about how I changed my <laughs> diet because of her. Anyway, yeah, no, she, she, she became my wife and she, you know, my wife's story is interesting too, which is that 
when she was five years old, she found out the way that cows are executed as a part of animal agriculture. And when she discovered this, it moved her because she's, my wife is an animal lover through and through. And she went home and she's five years old and she convinced her parents to stop eating meat. And so she transformed the entire family's diet. But what's interesting is that when my wife and I started dating, she was never, she never put pressure on me to become anything. She just supported me. And I found it myself. Again, it changed my life. And so I brought it, I was so moved by everything that this is what made me who I am today. I never, if you asked me then, Robbie, eight years from now, you're going to have a New York Times best-selling book and you're going to be on the Plant-Based News Podcast. I would have told you, you're insane. <laughs> <laughs> I took the Hippocratic Oath, and that is my dedication as a physician to taking the best care of my patients and to do no harm. And one of the things that Hippocrates said, not a part of the Hippocratic Oath, but one of the things that he said, is all disease begins in the gut. It is incredible how things can change, how we can turn 180 degrees as a person, not just emotionally, spiritually, mentally, you know, our whole lives can change when we find something like this, which in many ways is almost like a reason for being a purpose. Do you, speaking of purposes, though, obviously you're a gastroenterologist. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, for those who don't know, what is a gastroenterologist and, and why did you get involved in this specific type of medicine? So a gastroenterologist is uh, an, a specialist who has an expertise in all things related to human digestion and the disorders of, of digestion. So when you think of the esophagus, like acid reflux, you think about the stomach, like when you have, you know, um, a burning sensation after a meal, the pancreas, the liver, the small intestine, the colon, yes, even hemorrhoids. I am the expert. I get to claim that I am the master of the butt. And um, <laughs> yeah, not something you can claim very often, but <laughs> well, I worked very hard to make that claim. And it's a, and it's a complex world, isn't it? Like there is so much that goes on between your mouth and your butt, right? And that is the kind of area that you focus on. So I su you said that you were thirty when you met when you met your wife. So did and I, I assume it takes many years to study this particular type of medicine. Did this come after your revelations with, with regards to plant based nutrition? So I actually decided back in two thousand and four that I was going to become a gastroenterologist. I was a medical student at the time at Georgetown in Washington, DC. What I was attracted to was that I loved the variety of the different organs. So like if you're a cardiologist, you just think about the heart and the way that it beats. But for me, there was all these different organs, the esophagus, stomach, pancreas, liver, intestines, colon, and they're all unique in their own way. I find them all kind of cool, to be honest with you. I know that sounds totally nerdy, but guess what? I'm a nerd. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, so I was attracted to that. And the other thing too, for me was that as a medical student, I realized that I wanted to have relationships with my patients. I wanted to be in a room with a person and help them to basically peel apart the layers of complexity that exist in their life and find solutions and make them better. So that to me was inspiring and something that I wanted as a part of my career. But there was also a part of me that felt compelled to use my hands. This was a field, gastroenterology, where I spend half of my time in a room with a patient dealing apart those complex, picking apart those complex issues. But I spend the other half of my time using my hands doing procedures like upper endoscopy, where I run a, a small tube into the stomach, or colonoscopy, where I'm going in and I'm trying to basically prevent and cure colon cancer. 
So that's what attracted me. There really wasn't any nutritional basis to this decision. And it took me 10 years from that point. I made this decision in 2004 as a medical student. And 10 years later, I finally emerged from my training and was board certified and qualified as to perform independently as a gastroenterologist. And in that path along the way, you know, again, like I did not expect nutrition to be a part of my career. I was not trained in nutrition as a part of conventional medical training. But when I found the power that existed in nutrition, based upon what I described before, the changes that occurred in my life, I became obsessed with it. I dug into the medical literature because to me, I'm a scientist and I need to see that there's actually some science to back up what I'm going to tell my patients to do. And so I dug into the medical literature. I would do this after hours, like at night, you know, everyone else is asleep and I'm up looking at the, you know, looking at my laptop, reading articles. And I did this for several years and I started to bring what I was finding into my medical practice and seeing radical transformation in my patients. And this is what compelled me. It was so powerful and no one else was talking about this. Everyone else was just slinging drugs or doing procedures and not talking about food. I felt compelled to share this story because I, I, I was like, look, people need to know. And that's when I started my Instagram account back in 2016. I mean, let me be honest. It was, it was a very humble Instagram account. I mean, I, when I got a thousand followers, my wife and I were like looking at each other like, whoa, what's going on? I really didn't expect anything to come of it. It was not a business plan or a business model. There was no intention to write a book. Things just started to happen. And now here we are. Yeah, you wanted to share your passion. You were you were finding your path to your purpose, which is, I think, often what takes us to these interesting places. It's the same with plant-based news. Klaus and I had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. We were only doing this because we wanted to get this information to more people because we've both seen huge changes in our lives, personally, in our families' lives. But going back to the topic of, of the med medical facility and the kind of uh, the the places that you learned medicine. The desire to talk about lifestyle medicine and nutrition is it seems severely lacking. Uh, there is this sort of tendency to, to, to sort of drop straight into offering drugs or some kind of medical procedure, some kind of a medical intervention in some way with a, you know, a scalpel, say. Why do you think there's uh, such kind of pushback against this when there is a lot of data that suggests and a lot of studies that suggest that lifestyle medicine does work? Uh, you know, firstly, I guess it's a two-part question. You know, why is there such pushback and, and are, is there hope that things are going to change? Well, I think I would start by saying, I, I would start with your second question, which is to say that there is, we are beyond the level of hope. Things are changing. Things are changing because the younger generation sees, the younger generation of doctors sees that it has to change. And so you see a younger generation that they, their mind is open to the fact that Western medicine has its flaws and it needs to be repaired and it needs to be done better because we're not accomplishing our goal. The problem is that if the root of the problem is diet and lifestyle, which it is, we are not, we are not born to have Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis or acid reflux. We're not born to have these conditions. These are not purely genetically motivated. It's our diet and our lifestyle that leads us to a place where we develop these diseases. And if that's the root of the problem and we're ignoring that, then we're not getting anywhere and we're not actually fixing it because you have to fix the root of the problem if you really truly want to be in a place of health. 
And so these pills and these procedures, they cover it up. It's like putting a sheet over something that you don't like. I'm so curious as to how this knowledge, which has been around for a very, very long time, why hasn't it come to the forefront sooner? And why has this sort of method of Western, we could say Western medicine of pills and potions and, you know, scalpels, you could say, physical intervention, why has that always been the the first course of action, it seems, and, and that the medical in institutions have not taught nutrition uh, and, and a focus on, you know, what lifestyle medicine at the very core of medicine? Why does, did that get what feels like it's been lost in a way? It has been lost. And I think, and I, and I think what I would say to you, I mean, this is a, this is a great question and it is a complex issue. I mean, re there really are multiple aspects that you would need to dig into to have a complete understanding of this topic. But let me go back to the origins of modern healthcare, which is that we emerged from World War II. And during World War II, the biggest, the, the biggest breakthrough in the history of modern medicine occurred, which is that we discovered penicillin. And that changed, that changed the course of history because it added years to our life expectancy. People were dying of infections. The top causes of death were not heart attacks, were not cancer. People were dying of infections at that time. You discover penicillin and you go, oh my gosh, we have something that is so powerful and it is literally a pill. You put this pill into your mouth and it eradicates the number one cause of death. It's too good to be true. And I think that that was so seductive that we, we basically careened down a path where we were looking for quick, simple fixes in the form of a pill or in the form of a procedure. And we built a healthcare system around this concept of, gosh, it could be that easy. You could take a pill and it could fix your problem. And we built the healthcare system around that. And then we start to empower the pharmaceutical industry. We start to empower the medical device industry. And when they are empowered, they use that power to then influence the way that we continue to shape this conversation as the decades start to go by. They have influence now over our government and the way that our governments handle their business because they have lobbyists. And so now you end up in this place where here we are. And let me be honest with you, Robbie, the 21st century doctor does not like the way that healthcare works. This is not the way that we want it. And we are the person in front of you who is executing healthcare in this way. And so we're the ones who end up taking the blame because the insurance industry is a faceless creature. Hashtag monster and at times. <laughs> exactly. These are monsters. And it's and, and the problem is that, that I'm not going to go so far as to say that there is no good that comes from these things. Sure. Of course. But their, but their influence is not motivated necessarily by the purity of healing and getting people better. Because if it was, then the drug companies that are making billions of dollars off of selling drugs for Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis they would be funding studies to look at diet and nutrition and how to help these people with Crohn's and colitis. And they are not. Right. right. It's a bit like that story of the infinite light bulb. There is a possibility of making a light bulb that lasts forever. But what good is it to the capitalist model of making a light bulb that lasts forever? You want something that actually fails. And so the customer has to keep coming back for more. And, and, and this is the world we live in. We are in this ephemeral world where everything we do has, has got a shelf life and it's been is it, uh, built in obsolescence, I believe they call it. Do you feel like this is something that our 
as these sort of medical facilities are building into our lifestyles through the food that we eat and through the medicines that we take, that they know that it isn't going to potentially cure us forever. And keeping us on these drugs over extended periods are really just turning us into giant cash cows. Gosh, so I, I, I think it's an, a very interesting question. And I, I don't think for me, at least, Robbie, that I would go so far as to say that they are intentionally trying to make us sick with their choices. But instead, what I would say is that these are business entities and business entities are not motivated by what is good for society. They're motivated by dollars and cents. They have a board and they have a a chief executive officer where they are judged on a yearly basis based upon how much revenue they bring in compared to the cost. Right. And people lose their jobs if they don't make enough money. So if the motivation is dollars and cents, then what you find is that they're, they're not, their compass is not pointed towards what we really need, which is to actually help humans to heal. You know, I th- like these food, for example, the food system, the food system is even more broken than our healthcare system. And they, they are motivated by creating the bliss point, which is the short-term benefit that gets you hooked. You know, they want you hooked on their food. They want you addicted so that you will come back and continue to purchase their food. And they don't care whether or not you develop heart disease or cancer or diabetes or Alzheimer's or stroke after you eat that food. They would say, those are your personal choices. You made the choice. It wasn't our fault. That's true. But we say that these companies don't seem to care about whether we get ill or not. But there are some, how should I say this? frankly, what can sometimes come across as conspiratorial beliefs that the food industry, particularly in the US, it's particularly bad in the US, are in bed with the the pharmaceutical industry. These organizations, these sort of faceless organizations, they know exactly what they're doing. And they know that healthy people are not profitable. And they know that sick people are. And they know that continuing to push this kind of food, we talk about a lot in plant-based news with dietary racism, why is dairy a food group and recommended by the US government when they know that it makes many people who consume this product sick? There has to be some kind of decision making in this process. And you know, you got into medicine yourself to help people, and that the whole facility around medicine should be about health care rather than sick care, right? Right. And and there there just seems this sort of you know, from the outside, I'm not, I don't work in this world. So it's very hard for me to speak with with such certainty. But it does from the outside feel like there's an insidious sort of relationship going on there. Um, Obviously, documentaries like What the Health, you know, have pointed in that direction without any sort of you know, strong evidence. But it does worry me. It worries me. I've got friends and family in the US and many of them are very unhealthy, very, very overweight and continue to eat huge amounts of processed foods. And we'll talk uh, more in a bit about, you know, the power of food and how it can change us depending on what we eat. But they eat these foods, these highly processed, highly refined foods, and they're all on about 12 different types of medicine and costing possibly thousands of dollars a month. And they eat the food, it makes them all sick, and they take the medicine that keeps them alive. (laughs) But they could just change the way they eat. Why aren't there doctors saying, hey, Martin, why don't you put down the burger and swap it for a bean burger? Or why don't you swap out the the cow milk for almond or oat milk? I I just don't understand why this isn't happening because there are so many people dying from lifestyle diseases costing the American taxpayer millions of dollars 
when the solution to solving these problems is on our plate. <laughs> you know, I think, I think that the challenge, I think about this a lot, and I, these are all valid points that you bring up. You know, the, the, the problem to me begins, like what I look at, if there's one thing where I could start, I don't understand why lobbyists are allowed. It should be illegal. It should be illegal for financial powers to have influence over our government because when they do, this is the problem that we run into because then there's a downstream, there's a downstream effect, Robbie, where basically the money that they invest into lobbying our government entities comes back to them in spades. They're making money off of that money that they just invested into lobbying our government because they get subsidies on the back end and they're able to influence policy, which allows them to continue to exist despite the negatives. You know, it's conceptually similar. This is, we're living in a time right now that guys like you and I don't remember because we weren't born yet, but this is conceptually similar to, to big tobacco. How many studies did they do before they were, <laughs> exactly, before they were willing to accept that there was a connection between tobacco and lung cancer? And bear in mind for all the people who are trash epidemiology and say that it has no value. There is no randomized controlled study that says that tobacco causes lung cancer because it takes way too long. These are latent diseases and you need epidemiology studies to look at that. But the point being that I think that there's a resistance, you know, these powers, um, both on the pharmaceutical side and on the foods and, and on, in the food industry, they know that they're under attack. They know that the science is not on their side and they create systems and they make decisions and they flex their financial power to keep themselves in power. So, and it's problematic because you have to break through, but if they're, it's hard to break through when the money is all on the other side. It's only a matter of time before things change. They know the writing's on the wall, but they're getting as much money out of the system as they possibly can. But um, that's, that's something we could probably talk about for about three hours because there's so many problems like you say it's a multifaceted issue with you know money and society and culture and corporate greed and it isn't really something that we're going to be able to change in one generation i think but i think i do see hope and i do see the plant-based revolution as an opportunity to change this because what it does it gives individual people the ability to take their own health into their own hands without having to rely on pills and potions not saying that we can't and shouldn't use pills and potions i think they can help a lot of people look at the vaccines that are hopefully hopefully get us out of this pandemic we're currently living through but i think at the end of the day most of us easily reach for a pill and potion when we could and should be looking at lifestyle medicine as a way to resolve many of our ills which foods or drinks do your microbes think oh no this is terrible when they're coming down the gullet Oh gosh. Well, I would I would start with processed foods. You're initially starting with something that is potentially a health promoting food and you're applying, you know, man-made chemicals and altering that food until at some point it crosses the line, it stops being healthy. We have over 10,000 chemicals that have been approved for use in the United States in our food supply and and virtually none of them have had human testing. And the ones that have had human testing, we're talking about, you know, oh, well, they, they fed it to humans for a week and they were still alive, so we're good. What happens when you eat this food for 40, 50, 60 years? You know, and that's what I worry about. So I worry about, I worry about processed foods. You know, that's more than 50% of the, of the food consumed in the United States. And I would imagine it's the same in the UK. 
focusing on resolving ills, you know, today I'd love to talk more about your new book, Fiber Fueled, the plant-based gut health program for losing weight, restoring your health and optimizing your microbiome. What a great book. I've, you know, looked through most of it. I haven't had a chance to read all of it yet, but it is fascinating. Tell us a little bit about like how the idea for the book came along and then we'll go into some of the chapters and talk more about what it means. It's interesting because the motivation for this book came from a place where I'm sitting there in my office and I'm taking care of these patients and I'm seeing real humans with complex digestive issues who are transforming their lives on a plant-based diet. And I'm seeing the science emerge. You know, there are these studies that are coming out in the top medical journals. We're not talking about junkie journals. We're talking about literally the top journals on the planet. And these studies are coming out showing us that there is a special connection between our dietary choices and particularly the fiber in our diet, which we get from our plant foods. There's a special connection between that and our gut microbiome, this community of invisible microorganisms that lives inside of us that is deeply embedded and intertwined with human health. And so through the years, Robbie, I was seeing these studies coming out. I was transforming people's lives in my clinic with a plant-based diet, but the conversation that was existing in the in the popular health space was not reflective of the science at all. The conversation in the health space was focused on dietary restriction, on the paleo diet, on the keto diet, whole 30, go down the line, eliminate lectins, right? Eliminate phytates, eliminate oxalates. And every single one of these is an attack on the foods that actually heal our body and you see that the average American is eating 10% of their diet is real fruits and vegetables, and that's wildly inadequate. And so I saw that there was this disconnect between the way that we were living, how that was leading us to disease, causing our issues, how these fad diets were actually hurting us and not helping us. And here's this body of science that needs to be shared. People need to be aware of this body of science because no one else is talking about it. And that's what motivated me to write the book. Another thing that I worry about is saturated fat. So saturated fat, which, you know, classically we think about in red meat, um, can be found in a number of other things. Coconut oil, for example, is a plant-based thing that contains a lot of saturated fat. And our studies are quite clear that saturated fat causes damage and injury to the gut microbiome. I mean, this, this is breaking news. Are you telling me that coconut oil is bad for your gut? Coconut oil is bad for your gut. There's no question about that. It's extremely high saturated fat content. Uh, is olive oil different? We should not be striving to get more oil in our life. You have to understand how calorie dense oil is. So particularly for people that are trying to watch their weight, you know, one pound of oil has 16 ounces of oil has 4,000 calories, 4,000 calories. If you take the same weight of kale, it's a hundred calories, a hundred calories. You have ounce per ounce, 40 times more calories in oil than you do in a green. And how much fiber? Zero. There is zero fiber. The book obviously centers on gut and that's kind of your specialty. There's obviously lots of things that go on in the gut from, as we said earlier, from the mouth to the butt. <laughs> there's, a, there's a universe of things that occur to help you absorb your food, to fight off pathogens, all these incredible biochemical reactions, which are remarkable, really, when you think about it. It's an entire universe in one, as I said. But 
What are some of the sort of key things that go wrong with the gut that lead to chronic forms of disease? And, and how can we then go on to treat it with nutrition? Well, I think you have to start by acknowledging that the, the these gut microbes, so th this is a community of 39 trillion cells, 39 trillion individual organisms. They are alive. They are as alive as you and I are. They're not all the same. They have their own unique personalities. They have their own unique skill sets that they bring to the table to try to help you. And we evolved a relationship with these microbes. There was never a human in history that was sterile. We've always had a microbiome. And as we went through and evolved through human history, they were with us. It was a buddy tale. We rose and we fell together. If we lived longer, they got to live longer too with us. And in the course of that evolution, we grew to trust them. We have to acknowledge that they play a critical role in helping us to digest and process our food, our access to nutrients. They're connected and intertwined with our immune system. They control our metabolism. They balance our hormones. They affect our mood and our brain function. And they even have the ability to flip switches on our genetics. They can actually regulate the way that we express our genes. And if you zoom out from what I just said, because I know that's a lot, we're talking about almost everything that matters to human health. And we need them. You think about them as a workforce in a factory. They're in that factory doing their job for us. And the problem is that if you start removing some of your laborers from the factory and you start replacing those skilled laborers with people who are not designed to do that job, the factory is going to make mistakes. You're going to have problems. And it and, begins to break down. And then it begins to break down. And the problem is that if you're talking about what I would describe as the most central part of human health is right here in the gut. If that's the centerpiece, if this is the command center for human health, and that starts to break down, we're going to have serious problems because it's going to affect all of those things, digestion, our immune system, our metabolism, our hormones, our brain and the way it works, and the expression of our genetics. And this is why you see that there are all of these studies in the last 10 years showing us that when you damage the gut, which by the way, the word we would use for that is dysbiosis. When you damage the gut, you see the emergence of conditions consistent with this. You see autoimmune issues, you see obesity and diabetes, and you see heart disease, and you see Alzheimer's, and you see cancer. Wow. And before we go into some of these diseases, how the hell, how the heck, did, excuse my French, how the heck did all those little microbes get into my body. I recently did a test with a brand in the US where they test your microbiome and it came back with, I think, 49,000 different types of bacteria. Mm. 49,000 individual <laughs> types of bacteria. And I've heard a lot of people say that we're about 10% human and 90% bacteria. For a two-part question again, how did they get in there and how do they maintain themselves when there's so many? They are an ecosystem. In the same way that the Amazon rainforest or the Great Barrier Reef is an ecosystem, they live in balance and in harmony. There are good guys, there are bad guys, just like in our society. That's not every single person in London is a nice person, but the good people outweigh the negatives, and that's what allows London to thrive and be a great city. This is the way that these gut microbes live. They live as an ecosystem in harmony and in balance. And the way that we develop this microbiome which as you said, these microbes, if you look at the number of cells with a nucleus, we have 10 times more microbes than we do human cells. 
for every single human cell, you have 10 of these guys. It's fascinating. There are a hundred times more microbes living in your colon than there are stars in the entire sky. You would need to condense the entire galaxy down and get a hundred galaxies full of stars and put them inside your colon to equal the number of microbes that you have inside of you wow. right now. So that's mind blowing. It really is. And <laughs> literally, how do we? How do they get there? Well, while you are in your mother's womb. There are some interactions with bacteria, believe it or not. You're not completely sterile, but you're as close as you'll ever be to sterile. And then life starts, you are born, and you pass through the birth canal. And what's fascinating is this, this is an example where it, it blows my mind that this actually is the truth because it, it's just like, how did this happen? How did we get to be this way? During the third trimester of pregnancy, Mom's vagina has a microbiome of its own. It's different than the gut microbiome. And late in the third trimester, mom's vaginal microbiome changes to wow. resemble her gut microbiome. That's so interesting. The baby passes through the birth canal. And this is mom's gift to this, to this burgeoning child. This is their first exposure to the outside world. And it is through these microbes. Almost as if they know the baby's coming and they're ready that part of the body to, in a way, assimilate with the child. It's a welcome party. Yeah, it's so fascinating. I mean, I was a um, caesarean. What kind of effect would that have had on me? Because I would have been born through my mum's stomach rather than vaginally. Like, how would that have changed me as a child physiologically for my, as far as my microbiome would go? So before I even answer, let me just say, because I know that this is a very emotionally charged topic and I'm a dad myself. I have two kids. You can have children born by cesarean. You're a healthy guy. You were born by cesarean. Both of my kids were born by cesarean. So by no means am I saying that if you're born by cesarean, you cannot be healthy. But what we see is that uh, ch children who are born by cesarean, there is a difference in their microbiome and they actually have the representation of disproportionate numbers of microbes from mom's skin and less of these microbes that would be consistent with what you expect to develop from the vaginal birth canal. When we look at what happens during the developing child, this is a critical period of time in a child's life because they go from basically being sterile or borderline sterile to by the time they are two to three years of age, they have a fully formed adult-sized microbiome. And so this is a key period of time of development for this child and when you disrupt it by cesarean section, we find that there's increased risk of childhood obesity, increased risk of other metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, and increased risk of immune-mediated diseases like asthma or autoimmune diseases like celiac disease or type 1 diabetes. And it's quite fascinating, Robbie. You look at, it's not just cesarean section. If you look at exposure to antibiotics early in life, or if you look at bottle feeding instead of breastfeeding, what you find is the same pattern, which is that later in life, they are at increased risk for obesity, for type 2 diabetes, for type 1 diabetes, for asthma and other allergic issues, and for autoimmune yeah. issues. That's very interesting. I actually was a slightly overweight child and suffer with chronic anxiety and later in life have exhibited signs of potential autoimmune 
diseases, though I'm not diagnosed just yet. So anecdotally, there is obviously some chance that that may have been related to how I was born. But my mother did breastfeed me for many, you know, for the first few years of my life. So I think that I, I imagine breast milk, mother's breast milk does also contain a cocktail of uh, bacteria as well, right? Oh my gosh. So it is additionally fascinating to the change in the vaginal microbiome. In fact, I think I like it even more. So it's interesting. Mom's breast milk contains these substances called human milk oligosaccharides. Human milk oligosaccharides, there are over 200 varieties of them. And scientists for years were like, what are these things doing there? 200 varieties because they have no nutritional value to the child, zero. Is it a fat or what is it? What kind of molecule is it? So it, it is essentially a complex polysaccharide. And so it's almost like... A sugar of some sort. Well, almost like a fiber. Fiber, right. And what they discovered is that these human milk oligosaccharides are actually food for the developing microbiome. And it's something that you can't recreate. But it's fascinating to consider for a moment that humans evolved so that mom's breast milk would feed bacteria. They have prebiotics to feed the bacteria. That's incredible. It's almost like an interconnected network of communication going on between all these different organs, kind of a little bit like the mycelium, you know, the mycelial network that goes on and under the forest floor and how the trees all communicate with each other and the mushrooms are all <laughs> having a conversation, the bacteria all having a conversation. And that leads me on to my next question about bacterium and their relationship with the brain. Are there any thoughts or studies or even kind of theories about how the the gut microbiome and the and the, the the you know the bacteria that live there are they affecting our thoughts and our choices where we think we're making these these food choices when actually the bacteria could be doing it for us? Yeah, so th there is actually some some emerging science to suggest that our cravings are motivated by these gut microbes. So they are in a co competitive environment. They're fighting for their own survival. In order for them to survive, they need to be fed. They are alive. They need energy just like us. If they don't eat, they will perish. And what they have discovered is that these microbes have the ability to basically release chemicals into our bloodstream that will give us specific cravings to specific foods. So for example, some people are like obsessed with chocolate and other people, they're like, I could leave it alone. I don't really care. I'm not that into it. What they've discovered when they tested in these people who are obsessed with chocolate versus those who don't care is that the gut microbiome is actually sending a signal in the people who are obsessed with chocolate that makes them crave it. And essentially, there is a metabolite or a metabolic product that they produce that affects our brain and our desire to consume chocolate. Is that a peptide of some sort that kind of rewards the brain and gives you a nice feeling? Well, it's, it, it drives our motivation and our craving. And then we do have neurotransmitters like dopamine, for example, that is part of our reward center that gets activated. And 50% of dopamine, so our microbes in our intestines have the ability to produce neurotransmitters. Wow, that's, that's incredible. 50% of dopamine, the reward center, is produced in the gut. If they want to push the button, they can push the button. Who's driving who? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's the million dollar question. 90% of serotonin. 90? 90, 90. The happy wow. hormone. The happy hormone that controls our mood, controls our focus, our energy levels, the target for drugs to treat depression and anxiety. 
90% of serotonin is produced in the gut. That is incredible. So when we're out there eating this standard American diet or this standard Western diet full of refined foods and goodness knows what else, damaging the gut microbiome, and we wonder why we're taking large amounts of antidepressants and pills and potions and lotions to make ourselves feel better when our diet, which is damaging our gut, is then damaging our well-being. Uh, I, it just To me, it just makes so much sense. I just... Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you share my frustration here. <laughs> well, and, and it's, it's, we have to start to understand that food is complex. Food, it, food does not just like turn into calories and macros. No. Okay, that's our oversimplification. Our food is being picked apart and broken down by these microbes, and they are producing metabolites off of the food choices that we make. And those metabolites, these things that they produce, they can be molecules of health. They can go and spread throughout the body and, and reduce inflammation and heal us like short-chain fatty acids. But these metabolites can also be molecules of harm. They can be poisons and toxins that produce heart disease and cancer, things right. like TMAO. Yeah, I'm very interested in that that kind of biological process. So, when we would you touch lightly on how that that chemical is produced when we consume things like you know clarified oils, refined oils, animal products? What is the actual biomechanical process that actually occurs, and what is it actually doing to things like our arteries? So, so TMAO has been a very hot topic in recent years um, because coming from the Cleveland Clinic, which is for those who um, don't follow the cardiology space. It is literally perhaps the number one cardiology department in the entire country of the United States. They discovered on a study that there was this molecule TMAO that kept showing up and being an independent predictor, even when you control for whether or not the person smokes, has high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, it was an independent predictor of having a heart attack, of being more likely to die from heart disease. They discovered this, and so they worked backwards. What's up with this molecule, TMAO? And what they found is that it all hinges on the gut microbiome. When you consume red meat, which contains carnitine, or foods that contain choline, such as eggs, what ends up happening is these gut microbes take the carnitine, take the choline, and they transform it into TMA, which basically goes through the liver and is turned into TMAO, and TMAO increases our risk of developing blood clots. We have studies where they inject, you know, I obviously don't support animal studies, but this is what they did. They injected TMAO and they found that there were blood clots that formed when they injected TMAO into the animal. So we, they have basically completed the, the circle of how this works, which is that you consume the food that contains carnitine, like red meat, or that contains choline, like eggs. The gut microbes metabolize it, and because the gut microbes metabolize it, you end up with this TMAO that has been independently connected to heart disease, to death from heart disease, to atrial fibrillation, to congestive heart failure, to stroke, to death from stroke, to peripheral vascular disease, and to chronic kidney disease. I would have to go back, but I'm pretty sure I just listed four of the top 10 causes of death in America. That's incredible. I and mean, this is, really goes to show how like our gut microbiome, the families of, well, I was going to say pathogens and symbionts that live within us, how they really dictate our entire lifestyle and our well-being. This is a story of empowerment, though. This is a story of empowerment, and it's very, it's very important for people to hear this. You don't need to have the microbes that produce TMAO. 
you have the ability to shape your own microbiome to determine whether or not you're even capable of producing TMAO. And so they did a study, Robbie, that I think is really critical for your, your listeners to hear, which is that they took a steak and they fed the same size steak to two people. The first person was an omnivore and the person consumed the steak and they watched, they basically monitored, they monitored their TMAO levels over the following 24 hours and they saw it skyrocket. And then they convinced a vegan to eat a steak in the name of science. And they monitored the TMAO levels over 24 hours. And what they saw was a flat line. There was no increase in TMAO because the vegan, although they ate a steak, was not capable because they did not have the gut microbes. The vegan diet protected that person from developing TMAO. And that's a big part of why a vegan diet is good in the protection against heart disease. That's interesting. It really is interesting. And it shows how actually when we talk about food in its isolated way, it's not just about eating one food or the other. It's about that entire relationship that you have on your plate, all the different types of fruits and vegetables. Obviously, uh, when it comes to fruits and vegetables, we often talk about a whole food plant-based diet, a diet made up of predominantly plant foods in their most unrefined form. Um, there's a lot of discussion uh, and debate around something, things like oil. And um, when it comes to oil, it's considered not part of a, a whole food plant-based diet. And I do know Dr. Esselstyn talks about how drinking or eating oil actually damages your endothelium in your in your arteries and can produce T T T A M O T M A O. T T M A O. T M A O. Thank yep. you. <laughs> you know, it can produce that, but. When it comes to kind of banning certain types of foods like oil, what's your take on these kinds of this kind of rhetoric or dogma? Or maybe some might say, is it sort of healthy to have this approach if you're not in a diseased state? So let me start by saying this: that I I don't think we need more oil in our life. I don't see it as something that is a major contributor to longevity. Oil is the most calorie dense food that exists on the planet. It's very low in nutrients and it has zero fiber. So in the United States where people are consuming like borderline guzzling oil, I feel that it's important for them to understand you don't need more oil and you should be reducing your oil intake. That is a different conversation than asking the question, is it okay to have some oil? If the question is whether or not it's okay to have some oil, we do have studies, Robbie, in recent years. For example, one is called PrediMed looking at outcomes of heart disease where they actually gave people olive oil, extra virgin olive oil, and they gave people nuts. And what they saw was actually less cardiac events in the people who had some olive oil, some nuts in their diet. And so the point from my perspective is that I certainly would not encourage people to ramp up their oil consumption. If you choose to have oil in your life, it should be extra virgin olive oil consumed in moderation. And if you're going to cook at high heat, which we want to try to generally avoid that because that's where we produce carcinogens, but if you're going to cook at high heat, then avocado oil is a good choice for that purpose of cooking. Do I consume oil? Yes, I consume some oil. How often do I consume oil? It's probably less than once a week. 
This goes to the point that you make in your book about oxygen. Drink uh, when we consume, when we breathe in oxygen. It's at a very certain level. Anything over that could potentially cause serious damage and even kill us. Water is the same. You need a certain amount of water in your in your daily life, and if you consume more than that, you can actually get into dangerous levels, dilute your electrolytes, and potentially kill you. Do you feel like this rhetoric in diet, in nutrition, can sometimes kind of scare people because? You know, the average person wants to just live their life and not worry about counting everything and being so almost obsessive when it comes to different types of foods. Obviously, I think it's important for us to educate people that oil is calorie dense, but should we really be tarring all oils with the same brush? Is avocado oil the same as coconut oil? Is coconut oil the same as clarified, refined canola oil? Uh, Or should we be talking about volume rather than just sort of a blanket approach which a lot of plant-based doctors suggest don't oil don't touch oil it's sort of toxic i just i worry that the the way we approach nutrition sometimes as a as a community can be a little bit dogmatic and it can scare people yeah i think that you have a valid point and you know i I think that it's important to share the nuance of the conversation because at the end of the day it's all a matter it's all a matter of perspective and where are you coming from so you know if you went back and you took me 10 years ago, who was 5% plant-based, and you said the path to optimal health is through a whole food plant-based, no oil diet, I would have told you it's impossible. I can't do that. And I would have been so discouraged before I ever started that I wouldn't have even tried. And so I, I think it's important to share the nuance of the conversation, which is to say that you can consume some oil and be healthy. But you can't consume oil the way that Americans are currently doing it and be healthy. Those vegetable oils, which have excessive amounts of omega-6 fatty acids, are not doing us good. But if you were to reduce that, if you were to replace that with extra virgin olive oil, what you would find is actually you would bring health into your life. Mm. But we should still always use it very sparingly and almost in many ways see it as a sort of, I hate the word medicinal, that's not quite right, but using it in a sparing sense that it's more just about flavor, adding that little bit of extra silkiness to our food rather than glugging it on as if there's no tomorrow. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So moving on now to another area which I'm really fascinated on is the effect of the globalized food system on our gut health. So talking specifically about pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, the way we live in the world today, we go to the supermarket and we can get any fruit, any vegetable, any time of year, and it's often flown from far-flung parts of the planet and potentially covered in large quantities of pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, not large, but allegedly safe levels, including things like glyphosate, which as far as I've read, has does and can cause issues with the human gut. But is there any science behind that? And should we be worried about the amounts of pesticides, herbicides, and fungicides? Because these are antimicrobial substances. Are they affecting our gut? First of all, let me say that I, I welcome additional studies. I welcome additional data on this particular topic. But the studies that have looked to date at the effect of glyphosate on the gut microbiome have suggested that, you know, clearly it's not adding to the health of the gut microbiome. And what it is doing is it is causing changes to the gut microbiome that we would describe as as negative or or potentially consequential. When we look at research, Robbie, there's a couple principles that I think are really critically important. First of all, what is our null hypothesis? The null hypothesis is our baseline, like where do we come from at, at baseline from the beginning? And when it comes to glyphosate, which did not exist 70 years ago, like the humans had never been exposed to it 
until more recently. Our baseline needs to be that this is not safe until proven otherwise. We can't accept this as safe and then try to disprove it after there's already 7 billion kilograms poured onto this planet. And so we have to start with a baseline of, you got to show me that this is safe. You got to prove it. Well, they have not proven that. And when we look at the gut microbiome, what we see is harm to the gut microbiome. And when you look at population-based studies reproduced in both the UK and in France, when they analyze the effect of, the, of consuming a diet heavy in foods that contain these pesticides and herbicides, they find increased risk of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Two different data sets, same finding. That's not just a coincidence. That's not just chance. I also think that the conversation needs to go beyond human health. Human health starts with this planet. Human health starts in the soil. And if we destroy this planet and we destroy our soil, it may not be me who pays the consequence, but it'll be my kids and my offspring for future generations to come. And I'm fearful that because there is not adequate data to say that this is okay for the environment to spray glyphosate. In fact, there was a recent study that came out that said that in environments in ecosystems where glyphosate is sprayed, there is a loss of diversity on the order of 40%. Wow. I mean, it just makes sense, doesn't it, that this, these chemicals designed to kill microbial life is going to upset the balance and the equilibrium. You know, we often talk about rewilding in the UK, about how just allowing nature to do its thing is, a, is the best thing you can do for a piece of land. But modern agriculture comes in with brute force and sterilizes the land. And the irony is, is that the macrocosm is reflected in the macrocosm. What we're doing to our guts, sterilizing them, sterilizing our lives with all these chemicals and, and, and uh, cleaners in our homes and you know, eating very sterilized and refined foods, we're doing it to the soil. We're doing yeah. it to the planet. And I often say that it feels like you know, humanity is ripping the heart of Gaia out of the earth and eating it. You know, we are not realizing that actually we're eating ourselves alive. We are intrinsically destroying our own inner, li inner life, but actually destroying the outer life as well through our actions and our changes. But it's obviously a vast topic, and I'd love to get you on for another episode, if that is okay with you, because I feel like we could delve really deeply into this area, and there's so much to say. But I want to touch more a little bit before we end the episode on the benefits and the positives and talk a little bit more about what you bring uh, you know, as a scientist and as a medical professional to everyday people, and what can we do to protect ourselves from all of this? Because we live in a very toxic environment. There are so many things that are essentially trying to make us sick. The food we eat, the air we breathe, the water we drink. You know, what are the ways in which we can just do better when it comes to our diet and our health? Because those are the things that we have control over. What we do three times a day and sit, well, not three times a day specifically, but when we sit down and eat, we are making that choice. And what kind of choices should we be making to make sure that this sort of second brain, as some people call it, which really gives us so much, what should we be doing to, to really support it? Okay, let's take it home here, Robbie. This episode, you and I have talked about our food systems. We have talked about the government. We have talked about planetary health. We've talked about the use of pesticides and herbicides. We've talked about human health the gut microbiome. And here is the most important message. This is a story of empowerment. You, the listener right now, 
have the ability to make the choices that will shape everything that I just mentioned. Because at the end of the day, the consumer, whether they realize it or not, actually has the power. With all of these things that we're discussing, your food choices can have influence, can have power. And when it comes to your gut, your gut forgives you. Your gut is adaptable. Your gut wants to be healthy. And all that you have to do is make the right dietary choices and you will fuel that gut. You will give it the energy source that it has been dying to have. It will come to life. It will spring to life and it will bounce back and it will get back to work in that factory to optimize your nutrition, your immune system, your metabolism, your hormones, your mood, your brain health, your genetic expression. Your gut wants to do it. And the single most important thing, and I think this is important whether you are vegan or you are not vegan, whatever diet you eat, I want you to hear this. The single greatest predictor of a healthy gut microbiome is the diversity of plants in your diet. Our food systems want you to only eat soy, corn, and wheat. You have to be the one that breaks free. And when you go to the supermarket, you hear Dr. B, diversity of plants. When you're at the salad bar, you hear Dr. B, diversity of plants. When you're making the chili, diversity of plants. Let's get some more beans in there. When you're serving dinner, what can we add? Diversity of plants. If you make this a foundational philosophy for your diet, you are going to be healing your gut. You are going to be optimizing these microbes. You are going to be improving your health. And you can make those choices and at the same time, affect food systems. Take the power away from the pharmaceutical industry. Take the power away from the food industry. Stop paying money that's empowering glyphosate and these companies that want to spray these chemicals and start empowering us and our own health choices again. Amazing. That's a wonderful mantra for life. And I will be tattooing that on my forehead. <laughs> I already got under my lower back. <laughs> Amazing. Before I let you go, Dr. B, please answer me these three questions. If you were on a desert island and it was just you and a pig, if I gave you one vegan dish, one book and one music album, what would you take with you? Oh, man, that is a great question. So my one dish, gosh, that is so hard, but... There is this salad that I'm obsessed with, and it's basically it's basically like a Vietnamese salad. So it's got the peanuts, the cilantro, the fresh mint, and it's got this delicious ginger garlic dressing, and I get it with a curried tofu. If I could have that for the rest of my life, I would be a very happy man. The second question was the book. Obviously, I wouldn't take my own book. That would be very egotistical of me. So, hmm. What book would I bring? I'll be honest with you. I, I think for me, I would bring the Bible. It's something that serves me well. Uh, my faith is important to me. And it's something that I could spend countless hours reflecting on and, and contemplating. And on a deserted island, that would come in handy. And then finally, what, what uh, album would I bring is so hard because I love music. Um, and I often contemplate, like, what is my favorite album of all time and it kind of changes from month to month depending on when you ask me but okay so I go back and forth on this I'm, I'm leaning towards you two and it's a question of whether it's the Joshua Tree or um, Actum Baby and I think I'm going to go with Actum Baby so that's my album
Amazing. Dr. B, thank you so much for joining us on the PBN podcast. It was enlightening and a real pleasure to chat. Oh, my pleasure, Robbie. Thanks for having me on, my friend. Thanks for joining us, everyone. I've been your host, Robbie Lockie, and this is a PBN podcast. We'll be back next time with more veganism, health, food, nutrition, fashion, technology, and everything else in between.